Hey guys, before we get into the episode, I just wanted to take a second to talk to you about 12 Strides and 12 Group Norms for Liberty and Recovery. This is a book by former guest of the show, Asher Azo. And what it is, is a deep dive into libertarianism and 12-step philosophy. Not only do you get to learn about how to apply those principles to your very own life, but you also get to see what it looked like for the recovery community going through lockdowns and the COVID hysteria. Um, Also included at the end of the book is a fictional story about a man in recovery searching for his own son. Um, You can find this book on Amazon, paperback, or it's also available on Kindle. I will include the link to the book in the show notes page for this episode. So please go check it out. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Clean Libertarian Podcast. Thank you so much for hanging with me. Um, sorry I took a month off. Listen, I, I needed that time off, right? We, we geared up. We went to the national convention out there in Reno. Guys, it was so cool, man. We got to you know, spread the good word of the Sober Caucus. And uh, from the floor convention, we were actually able to raise $353 for a local fellowship hall out there. So not only did we show up in Reno, but we left it in a little bit of a better condition than we found it in. And uh, that's always a plus. You can't go wrong with that. So, um, you know, good things on the horizon, man. There is a lot going on, Um, you know, the Sober Caucus really got their name out there. We've got more members uh, stepping up. LP National really, you know, they got a change in leadership. And I know that a lot of people are hesitant. You know, I'm one of them. I'm not a Mises Caucus guy. Um, but I will tell you that so far from what I've seen, uh, I, I think we're going to start getting some more attention than what we have seen in recent years. So um, I'm, I'm not going to not going to hold anybody to the fire over something that hasn't happened yet. So, you know, give these folks a chance, man. Let them do what they're going to do. And um, yeah, so anyway, I, I hope over the last month you guys have been doing well. Thank you so much, like I said, for hanging in there with me. And and what a way to kick off the triumphant return than with Ben Westoff. Uh, ben is an investigative journalist. He is the author of the book Fentanyl, Inc., where he does a deep dive into the origins of fentanyl, how it's gotten into our supply, uh, how it is just predominantly taken over and and uh, this is just an illuminating conversation that we had and so uh, yeah I'm not gonna hang hang out too much in this intro uh, you guys enjoy here is Ben Westhoff all right I am here with Ben Westhoff Ben thank you so much for joining me how you doing sir great Drew thanks for having me I really appreciate it yeah, man, this is a. Uh, I I heard you on. I heard you on on Rogan. Um, I got to read. I admittedly I haven't read all the way through Fentanyl Inc. yet, but I uh, I went to Reno uh, a couple of weeks ago, and on the flight there and on the flight back, I was able to really get in through a lot of it. And so, this is one of those conversations that uh, absolutely is important to have. Now you you're an investigative journalist, you know, this is kind of like your, this is what you do. Uh, I really wanted to start out with just asking like, how did you get into this? Like what, 
what has driven you to uh, pursue this? I came up as actually a music journalist and I was working as the music editor in LA Weekly. Um, I, I wrote a lot about hip hop. I wrote two books about hip hop and um, I was investigating uh, the rave scene in LA where people were kind of dropping like flies. And um, it seems like every time there was a, a big rave, someone would die, you know, or two people or three people. And so the deaths were always blamed on ecstasy. And so this seemed weird to me because, um, you know, ecstasy I knew didn't, doesn't really kill a lot of people. And so I kind of did a deep dive into what these chemicals were that were actually killing people. And it turns out that these so-called ecstasy pills would have like no MDMA at all or very little. And um, it turned out there were all these new chemicals uh, called NPS, novel psychoactive substances that were um, being cut into these pills. And uh, they were all being made in China and most people had never heard of any of them. So I started investigating that. And, um, and that's when I learned about fentanyl, which sort of took over the whole book at that point. Yeah, that's that. So that that's a, great progression right there because i i remember it kind of starting back in the day too you know like i remember whenever um i was younger like dance safe was a thing you know and there's still a thing obviously but i remember going to the website and checking the pills to make sure you know that your your print was on there that you could find out what's in your what's in your pills and tabs and whatnot oh so but, you would just like look at your pill and just visually compare to what they had yeah that's uh that was that was another era. That's that's really that's that's cool. Yeah, that's way that's way back when, man. That's uh, you know, hell, that's been what twenty years ago, I think now. Yeah, because I was, I was in my uh, no, maybe not twenty, but yeah, that's here in Oklahoma, man. We didn't have anything really in the way of like uh, popular nonprofits that were you know doing any type of like harm reduction type of stuff. You know, like if you're buying these substances, it is heavily on the DL. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know. now now it's like they can make fake pills that look just like the real ones. So that method is probably not not as, yeah. uh, trustworthy. You know, now, you know, people send pills in, they have their home testing kits. But but yeah, back in the day, that was that was a really effective way to check, kind of check what you had. So <clears throat> let me ask you, when when you got into this and when you and when you saw it, like, what has what has been the biggest thing for you? Uh, the biggest eye opener as far as uh, this fentanyl epidemic? Well, it's just um, something that nobody saw coming at all, including the DEA. You know, I found these uh, DEA threat assessment reports from like 2015, 2016, and basically they said, uh, you know, fentanyl, it's bad, but people aren't going to want to take it recreationally because the risk of death is too high. So don't worry about it. That's basically what they were saying. And then by 2016, you know, their report came out probably at the beginning of 2016. And by the end of 2016, it was already the deadliest drug, you know, ever in America on a terms of annual number of people killed. And it's only gotten worse and worse since then. And, and, and yet still the, public consciousness about it is very low, you know, and I attribute that to kind of like opioid fatigue, 
you know, this is the third wave of the opioid epidemic, the, the pills like Oxycontin were the first wave and, and that was big news. And that's still big news in a way. It's like still what people are talking about, you know, there's, there's been the second wave heroin and now the third wave is fentanyl, but people are still obsessed with like the Sacklers and, you know, Oxycontin and, and, you know, that's, that's not the problem at all anymore. And, um, it, people, I think, just got tired of reading about it. You know what I mean? There's so many deaths. It's such a depressing story that, you know, people were like, well, if you thought that was bad, now fentanyl is really bad. And people are like, all right, enough. But um, it just doesn't take seriously how not only deadly it is, but just how pervasive it is and how it can be cut into all these other drugs that people don't even realize. Yeah, I think one of the, um, for me, like, and, and when I read what was stood out to me the most was talking about like people walking around, like as you could walk around the Ziploc baggie full of fentanyl and the cops couldn't touch you, you know, because it was just, you know, a slight difference off. And I've seen some narcotics kind of take that trajectory. Uh, like I remember like 2CE and 2CI when once that hit the streets out here, like cops couldn't do anything to you, you know, but like you had it and none of us uh using you know consumers none of us really knew what the hell it was you know that's kind of the thing and so it's uh the scary thing about like how we figure out what something is is you know you get the uh you get the crash test dummy in the group to try it out and if they have a good time then we're all having a good time you know right i, um, I read a lot about uh sasha shulgin who's sort of he's called the godfather of ecstasy but really he's kind of the godfather of nps and these new synthetic drugs. So basically an NPS is just a drug you've never heard of before. Or most people had never heard of until recently. Like, like you said, all the 2CI, 2CB, um, these, they're, they're different. Um, there's psychedelics, there's opioids, there's um, cannabinoids, um, cathinones, all these different classes of drugs that, um, you know, for, almost all of human history, there was like a dozen, you know, drugs that people used reliably to get high and they came from plants and animals sometimes. And, uh, but now in the last, you know, 10 years or so, there's like a hundred new drugs a year, every year, or sometimes even a lot more than that. And, um, Sasha Shulgin kind of pioneered this idea of, uh, just subtly, adjusting the molecules of a known drug, switching the chemical formula just a little bit, and then you have something new. And he, of course, sampled these himself to, to see what he had. And um, that technique has kind of um, gotten really popular on the internet. So, you know, as it stands right now, I mean, it's how, how long could we see these type of adjustments being made with the same kind of derivative of uh, I mean, fentanyl. it's endless. It's literally, you know, uh, infinite number of possible drugs. I mean, that said, most of these new chemicals, they don't come from scratch. You know, almost everything is sort of a derivative of something that's already out there. And the Internet really opened all this up because there are all these university papers um, from decades in past, you know, the 90s, 80s, 70s, 
where university chemists were trying to patent a chemical or bring a chemical to market, you know, with some sort of medical purpose. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times these, they just didn't make it, you know, and these chemicals were never sold or marketed, but they they remain in these academic papers that were just sitting on dusty university shelves for so many years. But, but in the internet age, they're all put on the internet. And so, all these chemists can just go through, they can find a scientist known for making, for working with chemicals that might have a psychoactive effect. And they just go through all that chem, that uh, chemist papers and just start making these. Uh, they've got the chemical formulas and they just start making them and, and uh, the market is, you know, gets flooded. That's just absolutely insane. And, and what, what drives them to do that? What drives, what's the rationale behind switching this up and, and constantly making new versions of the same thing? A lot of it has to do with evading the law, like you were saying. Um, in the U.S., there's the, the Analog Act, which means that not only are any, you know, whatever drugs they make illegal, um, but any drugs that have a similar course of action or a similar course, uh, chemical structure or similar effects. Like those are automatically legal, automatically illegal. And so, um, but other countries don't have that, like China, where these drugs are made. In China, you know, every time there's a new drug invented, that has to be banned. And that process can take a year or more. And so in the meantime, <clears throat> these chemists can make these new drugs and they're completely legal in China. And that's what happens. And so you have this big gray market where um, these Chinese companies, like the ones that I investigated, I went undercover in uh, in a couple of Chinese chemical companies uh, making fentanyl and other drugs in China, and they were operating completely legally there and sending it to other to Western markets. What were, and can you kind of talk about that a little bit? Like, what was that like for you? That was uh, pretty scary. Um, the whole, I had heard so much about China producing all of these new chemicals and, um, and, but no one had done any real reporting on it. And so I just, I made like a fake Skype account and started contacting, I just Googled buy fentanyl in China. And there were all these uh, salespeople, these companies, the salespeople had their address, email addresses, phone numbers right there, Skype addresses. I contacted them and I said, well, I pretended to be a drug distributor and said, if I was in China, would they let me see the lab, their labs? And some of them said yes. And so I just, um, you know, went there and uh, just showed up at these places. A lot of them had their addresses like right there on their homepage. They weren't making any, you know, pretensions at all about um, trying to hide. And so um, I got a tour of one of these kind of Breaking Bad style labs outside of Shanghai. Uh, I visited this, uh, the company selling more fentanyl precursors than any other company in Wuhan. This was back before coronavirus, but um, I, uh, these, they're very professional operations. These weren't like underground, um, cartel style operations. They were pretty much legitimate businesses. Wow. And that's, and, and are, they're able to operate above board out there. Now, 
I don't know anything about like, you know, what regulations uh, Chinese government puts on, you know, manufacturing companies, but I'm assuming there has to be some sort of permit or something like that that allows them to operate as a pharmaceutical company. Uh, is that correct? Or are they just able to open up shop and do their thing? Yeah, there there are restrictions, but a lot of times they'll they'll have a permit to, you know, make one sort of chemical, but then they'll actually be making another sort of chemical. Gotcha. Um, but in terms of like the different fentanyls, uh, fentanyl itself was was banned a long time ago, but it wasn't until 2019 that China banned the fentanyl analogs, which is, you know, just slight derivations on on fentanyl. And that, now those are banned, but but there are still all sorts of other opioids that are that can be made legally there. Um, the fentanyl precursors, the ingredients for fentanyl, that's sort of the main cash product now. And there there's it's sold to the the Mexican cartels. And so, you know, the laws are are tightening in China, but the enforcement they're, they're very they're very few boots on the ground to actually. Do the enforcement so now from from your journalism from your studies and and what you've seen like how how did we get to this place where fentanyl's showing up and literally everything like what what's driving that fentanyl is a strange drug in that it's not supply driven it, it, excuse me it's not demand driven it, it is supply driven so like when you think about most drugs in most products, you know, it's it's made because the consumer wants it and the consumer seeks it out, and that's what's driving driving the product sales. But with fentanyl, it's cut into all these other drugs as a cost saving device, and it's so much cheaper to make. It, you know, if you want a kilo of heroin, you've got to grow opium poppies out in a big field, and it's gonna you know you're gonna have to water it, and you're gonna have to care for it, and then you're gonna have to harvest it, and it's going to have to be, um, you know, there's a long process to actually turn the poppy into heroin. Um, but with fentanyl, you can just make it in a lab and it's a quick process and it's sold for only like $3,000 a kilo in some cases. And so, um, you know, it's like, it's, it's an incredible bang for your buck from a dealer's perspective. And so, there's this huge motivation to to use it as a cutting agent. And it started out in like heroin, which is would seem to be a natural fit since they're both opioids. But now it's really moved into any drug that can be a pill or a powder. And, and that's what I tell, especially young people, is that you can't um, just show up at a party and do a line anymore, you know, and, and yeah. any pills that you get, that aren't from a pharmacy or from your doctor or whatever really could be cut with fentanyl. And you're seeing all these, uh, these Xanax, they look exactly like a Xanax or a Percocet, but, but actually they have fentanyl in it. Yeah. That's, um, and it's, I've heard stories of it showing up in cocaine, uh, showing up in meth, you know, which is it. And do you think that, um, what we see is an issue of cross-contamination. Is it malicious contamination, you know, willful? Um, I, I, I don't think it's cross-contamination. I've heard that used a lot, and maybe that's a, a small factor. But, but no, it's deliberate. 
Um, but it's not always delivered by your like local dealer. You know what I mean? Um, these powders and pills are sort of cut up and down the supply chain. And so it's very common, you know, that it might be done in Mexico at the cartel level, first cut. And then it, it, when it's brought across the border into the U.S., these regional distributors might cut it further. And so then when your your local dealer gets this product that, you know, is being he's selling as meth or he's selling as cocaine or heroin or pills, like he himself might not know what's in it. You know, like he might be under the the impression that he's selling a pure product. And um, and that is is the issue. You know, fentanyl obviously is a important hospital drug and it's used safely for medical reasons all over the country, you know, all the time. But there there are trained anesthesiologists who measure the doses precisely. And that's their job. Right. But but, you know, these dealers have no sense at all how to properly mix fentanyl and cut it into these other drugs. It's just, uh, you know, I talked to a guy who used like a Mr. Coffee coffee grinder to, to mix up the fentanyl and the heroin. And, and that just creates these hot spots. So like one dose might be fine, might not do anything, but the next dose from the same batch could kill you. So, I mean, yeah, there, there is no like accurate measurement of what's going into that, that ratio at all. That's yeah, it's possible to do it, but it's, it takes training. It's difficult. So like, um, have you, have you seen places approaching, uh, you know, a, a response to this epidemic that, that you think is, is a good approach? Do you, do you see anything positive? Do you see this stopping anytime soon? I don't see it stopping anytime soon, but there is a lot, you know, that's sort of heart heartening about the response. I think we've kind of almost fully not not i mean we're we're vastly approaching exiting the war on drugs i think you know we're still incarcerating people for drug crimes for nonviolent drug crimes but the numbers are dropping we're seeing the decriminalization of not just marijuana but other drugs all you know over the us and canada and different places it's it's starting it started slowly but it's quick picking up speed um, and harm reduction is sort of becoming the prevailing philosophy. And I think that's, that's great. You know, I think like we need to not only stop um, imprisoning nonviolent drug offenders because that doesn't help them get off drugs. It makes things worse, you know, but we need to reduce the stigma. And there, I think people are realizing that it's not, you know, just like, bad people who use drugs you know it's everyone and everyone is is susceptible and um and so and so that's good we're finally starting to see funding for you know like we were talking about needle exchange programs and there's like some supervised injection facilities that are starting to to pop up um you know fentanyl test strips are not are becoming legalized in states where they were banned before they're they're more accessible um, narcan is more available um but you know i i don't think harm reduction is a panacea and you know even 
as harm reduction um, takes off and is becoming more popular, the number of drug deaths is still rising. And in places like Vancouver, where it's been particularly, uh, you know, they've had some really progressive measures and supervised injection facilities, like the problem is, is really bad there. And so, you know, it's, it's not something that offers any easy answers. It's, it's kind of like capitalism gone amok in a way because it's, it's like the profit incentive for, for fentanyl is so strong that people are, you know, willing to sacrifice human lives for it. Um, so I know that's a little bleak, but. <laughs> I mean, and that's the, the scariest part is that for a long time, my understanding of the black market was that, you know, even there, you know, the consumer is to be protected. If you want return customers, you know, you give them what you say you're going to give them and watching that paradigm shift away from that, you know, into a market where it's like, no, we're just going to say this is one thing and it's actually another with no care at all about the well-being of your customer. It's just, it's a very strange thing to see happen, right? So, from where I'm sitting and, and, you know, as a libertarian, obviously, you know, I'm, I'm always going to go with the uh, less government would be a better outcome. And in, in particular with this, you know, allowing, allowing these drugs to be sold in the uh, open market, you know, not in the back alleyways um, where you have a consumer and a retailer making informed decisions and having honest conversations and where that verbal contract of selling a product can be, you know, you could seek damages in the court of law if, if there was malicious intent involved. Seems like a better situation. Um, do you, would you agree with that? Do you think that that would be a step in the right direction? Yeah, I think so. I think um, having a re regulation about um, what's in these chemicals that are being sold is particularly important for, for something like fentanyl. And so, you know, the example a lot of people use is like during prohibition, um, when people uh, wanted to, when bootleggers were selling bathtub gin and stuff, they made it all a lot stronger because you could transport it more easily, less, you know, it would take less to, 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 to make the same profits. And this made the booze more sort of um, more sort of potent and dangerous. And that's kind of similar to what's happening with the drug supply right now. And I went to Spain, you know, during my reporting for Fentanyl Inc. And they don't have a problem with fentanyl there. And they don't have a problem with a lot of these new NPS because they decriminalized all drugs. And so they're, you know, the harm reduction people I talked to there said that people really prefer the traditional drugs, you know, they don't want fentanyl if they can get heroin, you know, they don't want um, these crazy new cannabinoids, K2 and spice, if they can get, you know, good, good marijuana. And I think there's something to be said for that. I also wrote about these, this LSD knockoff called N-bombs, like the worst name for a drug ever, but these, <laughs> you know, yeah. Yeah, you know LSD, <laughs> very poor branding. Um, yeah. LSD is has never killed anyone. No one's ever overdosed and died from LSD. And yet, in the wake of its pr prohibition, there are these new knockoff 
psychedelics that were legal when they were made and they were killing people. And so um, I think, you know, if, if we can have a situation where these, you know, psychedelics say are regulated and people can buy them from a trusted, you know, from a pharmacist or whatever, be prescribed by a doctor or a counselor or a shaman or something like that. I mean, that, that would be pretty neat. Yeah, I think so too. I, I think that would be, you know, uh, I think that there would not only would that create a better outlook uh, for, you know, kind of like the future that we have found ourselves in, but uh, the, you know, applicable purposes for some of these substances would, you know, kind of make its way out into the mainstream, you know, um, you know, as somebody who, you know, I'm in the recovery community. So like, I'm never going to use these substances again, at least not today, you know? And so, but from where I'm sitting, like I can see some of the value, uh, in, in something like, you know, ayahuasca and, uh, LSD microdosing shrooms and all of that. But, you know, uh, right now, what you have is some blurry information on some of it, right? And even more blurry information whenever you're buying from somebody who they're all you already know that they're not operating above the table, right? Like they're in the black market. It is what it is, you know. Um, so when it comes to Spain, I, I want to touch on that one more time, just a little bit further. Like, how long have they been decriminalized out there? Do you know? Uh, it's been a while now, at least like six, seven or eight years. Um, and uh, Portugal, too. And Portugal got a lot of press because when they they had a big heroin problem. And um, once they decriminalized it, they found that not only did um, the problems associated with heroin use, you know, needles in parks, um, HIV and other sexually transmitted diseases or, or, you know, blood transmitted diseases, those rates uh, went down. But the actual use of heroin and particularly problematic use of heroin didn't go up. It actually went down. And so that that was pretty amazing. And Spain has seen a lot of those same great results as well. So has and, and the reason I asked, like the, the timeline, like one of the things that was shocking to me is like finding out that you know, how long fentanyl's been around and, and, and all of that. I was curious, like, has fentanyl made its way into these countries? Like, do, does Spain, does Portugal um, have a presence of it? And if it is there, do people know that it's there or, or is it just kind of those guys are pushed out? What's crazy is that it's only really the U S and Canada and also the small Northern country of Northern European country of Estonia that have fentanyl problems. And so a lot of that is due to the overprescription of the pills like Oxycontin and that kind of started this domino effect. And that really only happened in the US and Canada. Um, but that said, we are starting to see fentanyl creep up in places like England and Australia a little bit. And my, you know, again, pessimistic prediction is that it's only a matter of time before we do see fentanyl in these other European countries and um, other places around the world because the profit motive is just too high. Yeah, that's, um, that is, and, and I look, 
Ben, you're a saint for hanging with me through my ADD. Like, man, I jump around on top. This is just my style. My audience is, uh, they, they're used to it by now. So, but I, I want to jump to that, uh, you know, the prescription pill thing. You know, like I remember distinctly when I was little, my dad was prescribed Oxycontin for migraines and his doctor told him, oh, hey, you know, like this is not, it's not habit forming. You're going to be fine. And that wasn't the case, you know, and prescribing something like Oxycontin for, you know, a headache is insane. You know, yeah, I mean, it's, insane. it's crazy, you know, but, um, do yeah, you I have, uh, sorry to interrupt. I, um, I'm speaking with this, uh, the provider of treatment, uh, opioid treatment options in St. Louis, his name is Percy Menzies. And, uh, his theory is that like, you have these really strong, you know, prescription pills that we're using too much, like you're saying, and that there, we have these opioid treatments like methadone, for example, that's still super potent. Um, but, but that should be used as a pain reliever, you know, for like acute pain. And uh, we should just, you know, kind of ratchet down the whole thing. And I heard, heard someone talk about like in Japan that she was there with her father in Japan and he got this terrible like open wound. He got cut like all across his like abdomen and in the hospital, they just gave him a couple of Advil, you know, and there's like no culture of opioid use at all in Japan. And um, on the one hand, you know, it sounds, you know, draconian, but on the other hand, I think we just completely have overdone it here. Yeah, we, um, the, the culture and, and running away from pain is different. And the way we look at these pills as if they are some sort of treatment that will eventually cure the pain when in reality, it's just, you know, numbing it. Like, you know, they're, it's not solving the underlying issue. Um, I know like out here, you know, pain management clinics were huge for a long time and, you know, there was no treatment going on. It's just a constant, you know, revolving, you know, uh, prescription plan. Yeah. Meanwhile, was. you're developing an addiction. And yeah, I heard something like if you're on these strong narcotic pills for more than six weeks, you're no longer even treating the pain. You're just sort of maintaining an addiction. Yeah. Big time. I, you know, in, in the rooms and, you know, in meetings, I can't tell you how many times, especially post you know, the hammer being brought down and, and doctors being really reined in on, on what they could prescribe. I would see, you know, very well-to-do people sitting in a meeting, you know, wringing their hands, just not sure how they wound up in a 12-step meeting because of their, you know, uh, prescription that they were taking. Like they did not know what they were getting into Yeah, at all. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the only caveat I would add is that just taking these people's pills away, though, is not the answer either. No. You know, that's been a, kind of an overcorrection in this country. That you know, once if pe once people are addicted, I mean, it, if you take away their pills, then they're going to turn to street heroin, street fentanyl, and so um, you know. And then, and then, I, ironic. I mean, maybe ironically, is that people with opioid addictions, you know, long-term heroin problems, of the the best solution is often like you know, government heroin and, 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 you know, so you gotta, you know, change how we think about a lot of this. Yeah. There is a um, healthy dose of grim irony in that, you know, um, 
especially when the pills get taken away and they're pushed into a marketplace of, you know, fentanyl on the rise. Um, one of the things that we saw too, uh, that I know of personally is, you know, when COVID hit, a lot of meetings shut down. Uh, this obviously had an adverse effect on many people, um, for better or for worse. Um, some folks got really used to going to those meetings in person and, and that's where they thrived. And uh, so they relapsed into a brand new black market that they weren't experienced with before. And lo and behold, there was fentanyl waiting. You know, um, it's a scary, scary time to be in that world. Um, we, you touched on it on, on the methadone. And I wanted to get your opinion on it. Like, what, what do you think about things like Suboxone and methadone? Um, I have very mixed feelings, you know, um, because a lot of people report that methadone can be even more addictive than heroin. And, um, I, you know, obviously like, um, the, one of the biggest problems with heroin and fentanyl and street drugs is just like to obtain it, you know, how are you going to get the money, you know, and it turns a lot of people into crime and prostitution and things like that. And, you know, dirty needles and all the problems with that. And so, methadone and suboxone are obviously an improvement over that but but it's also kind of like palliative care almost in a lot of cases it's like it's it's almost like we're not even going to try to like get you drug free we're just going to sort of put you on this you know in some cases for the rest of your life and um, there's another treatment drug that i don't think gets enough attention which is called naltrexone and it's known through the, the Vivitrol shot. And naltrexone is actually pretty much the same chemical as Narcan, naloxone. Um, it's just that Narcan is administered um, after an overdose, whereas naltrexone is administered prophylactically, meaning before you take it, um, before to block an opioid. And so basically, um, naltrexone is... Uh, an uh, opioid antagonist. So if you, you know, take this shot of naltrexone, the brand is Vivitrol, it basically gives you a full month where you can take heroin, you can take fentanyl, and it won't even affect you at all. It won't latch on to the receptors. And so, you know, uh, not everyone can take naltrexone. Like you have to be completely detoxed. You can't have anything in your system. So uh, for a lot of people, it's hard to get completely detoxed at all. But for like people coming out of prison who have previous opi opioid addictions, it's particularly useful. Um, and I've, I've worked with with a guy who's had a really successful run with it. And, um, you know, like if you're for pilots, you know, pilots or, and doctors, for example, aren't allowed to operate um, if they're on methadone or suboxone but they are if they're um, on naltrexone and same with pilots and things like that. And it's a way to get, you know, drugs totally out of your system. That's a, uh, yeah. And that's kind of been my summation. So like I work in the recovery field, you know, and um, seeing kind of the response to some of the suboxone and, and you're absolutely right on the methadone like that. Kicking methadone is a nightmare and a half, right? Uh, just as bad, if not worse than the actual hair in, in and of itself. And um, so, yeah, well, um, 
Ben, you have done a lot of solid work on this. You know, you you've throughout your book and and just kind of what you brought into light. You know, have illuminated some things on this. Um, before we get into like your current project, just what what's one thing that you want people to really get out of your your work, uh, Fentanyl Inc. Just that the education is the most important thing, and it. Uh, if you're going to use drugs, you know, um, you have to test your, your drugs. I mean, a hundred percent, like if, if there's some, you know, like marijuana buds and you can smell them and they look normal, you're probably fine. But for any powder, any pills, you know, I recommend the bunk police. They sell these affordable testing kits. Um, but yeah, just, just kind of like people who work in harm reduction, like yourself, I think just, um, spreading the word about fentanyl is so important because I think a lot of kids especially just don't have any idea. And um, that's kind of what I would like my main, the main takeaway to be. Right on. Um, so moving out of that and into your current work, what's tell us about your most recent uh, book. My new book is called Little Brother, Love, Tragedy, and My Search for the Truth. It's a kind of a true crime memoir about my relationship with my little brother in the Big Brothers Big Sisters program. So his name was Jarrell Cleveland, and he was my mentee for 11 years before he was murdered in 2016 near his home in Ferguson, Missouri, outside of St. Louis, where I live. And um, there was no, you know, no one was arrested. The case went cold. And I, I initially thought his killing must have just been random. But uh, eventually I started, it started to dawn on me that Jarrell knew, probably knew his killer. And so I applied sort of my full investigative journalist skill set to figuring out who killed him and kind of getting to the bottom of the story. So that's what the book is about. Well, that's incredibly interesting, man. Um, I, I don't want you to give, give anything too much away from that, but um, how did you get involved in that, in that program? We'll start there. Big brothers, big sisters. Yeah, it's a great program. I just wanted to do something where I could really give back and I was really needed. And, um, they, they really need especially male volunteers all over the country at these programs. Um, and even, you know, though, even though my mentee died, I still really strongly advocate for the program. Yeah, that's um, I've I've known people who, who got into it and uh, have never heard a single bad thing about it. You know, we lift each other up. Right. Like that's how society is supposed to operate and function. Um do you still talk to this mentee's parents or, or family to any extent? Yeah. I mean, we just had the book launch for my, for little brother, my new book and um, Jarrell's dad introduced me. And uh, that was kind of the silver lining for this whole process was getting to know his family better. And, and, you know, they really wanted answers, you know, they wanted to know who killed their son and why. <clears throat> and so just being able to, uh, it took me like three years to really bear down and figure out, figure this out. But to be able to do that for them was very meaningful. That's huge, man. Yeah. That's, that, I mean, just 
not only for, for them to have an advocate, but to have an advocate like yourself in their corner. That's, that's a huge deal, man. Um, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, Ben, thank you so much for taking the time to come on. Uh, where can people find you and keep up with, with kind of what you do? You can just Google Ben Westoff and you'll have my website and it's got, um, you know, and and any like book retailers will have fentanyl ink and, uh, my new book, little brother. And I've also got a newsletter called drugs and hip hop that, uh, people can sign up for. I'm going to, I did not know about that. I will yeah. sign up for that today. That's right up my alley. <laughs> All right. Well, Ben, thanks a lot for taking some time on a Saturday morning to hang out with me and, uh, and talk about this. I appreciate you, sir. Well, thank you for having me. It was uh, great talking to you, Drew. Right on, man. Have a good one. All right. All right. There you go, Ben. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you guys for tuning in and listening to that. Uh, please go out and, and get that book, Fentanyl Inc. Uh, I picked up my copy on Amazon, so it's available there. Uh, obviously, Barnes & Noble or wherever you buy books will have, have a copy of it. But it's a, uh, it's a phenomenal book, a great deep dive into kind of the current state of things, man. Um, ben really didn't pull any punches with this one. He, he got to the bottom of it and uh, a lot of great information in there. And so uh, without, with, with, with that out of the way, uh, kind of wanted to make an announcement. So I am currently taking donations. Um, this has been something that has been on my mind for quite a while. I am Absolutely going to be starting a, uh, a needle exchange out here in Oklahoma City. Um, we're going to call it Out of Harm's Way, OKC. And I don't know, guys. I've prayed about this a lot. I feel really called to do it. And uh, currently, I think, you know, we, we're at $150 raised. Need realistically about $500 to get this thing going. So if you're listening to this and this that's something that you could help out with, I don't care if it's five bucks, ten bucks, whatever, please reach out to me either on Twitter, uh, at LibertyDrew84 or at you know Clean Podcast. Um, find me, you know, and, and let me know. Every every little bit is gonna go to help out. You know, we're not seeking grant money, not seeking to use taxpayer dollars for this. We can we can one hundred percent fund this through the community. And so um, just some stats for you, like, you know, the, uh, the main thing is, is that people who have access to clean equipment, um, they are five times more likely to seek and find recovery than those who don't. Here in Oklahoma, we do not have the ability to purchase clean needles from a pharmacy without a prescription. Um, I have literally watched addicts mutilate their arms with livestock needles from tractor supply, you know, um, also, you know, sharing needles is a huge thing out here. We have one of the highest mortality rates in the country for things like hepatitis C and the like. So, um, the, the whole idea about it is, is that dead addicts can't recover, right? So, this is one of those things that we're going to give people a chance to stick around long enough that hopefully recovery can take hold. It's grimy. It's dirty. It's not real pretty, you know, but the facts are the facts, right? 
And the, and the fact of the matter is, is that we need to keep these folks alive. And so if you can help with that, it would be greatly, greatly appreciated. Uh, but anyway, thank you guys so much for sticking with me, for tuning in. And uh, I have some wonderful, wonderful interviews lined up in the next month. And uh, yeah, I love y'all very much. And song of the day, can't forget that. So to celebrate Pride Month kicking off, you already know, it's Screeching Weasel, I Want to Be a Homosexual. This is such, this is just a great song, man. I hope you guys like it. So uh, yeah, we will see y'all later.